Holy Gospel is taken from the Gospel according to St. Matthew, beginning in the 13th chapter and the 24th verse. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? You said to them, an enemy has done this. So his, the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them, let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. I speak to you now in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. It's a pleasure to be with you. This morning I bring you greetings from Christ the King in Edmonton. As, uh, as your pastor John has mentioned, it is significantly colder for us up there. Some have wondered about polar vortexes and so on, and we have to be reminded that it's actually just normal, normal winter for us uh, when it gets down to minus 40, wind chill and so on. Anyways, greetings to you from uh, Christ the King, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm so glad to be here. As John said, he's one of my, uh, I think this weekend he's my best friend, but we'll see what next week brings. <laughs> Now, today's readings, today's Epiphany readings aren't perhaps the most uh, warm and comfortable readings for a visiting preacher to preach about. Uh, perhaps it's good that a visiting preacher addresses them, but if you have your Bibles or your, your devices, if you can keep them open to the Gospel reading, and we will be touching on the Epistle later as well. Um, I just want to say something about the, the logic of the historic one-year lectionary that, um, that you're following, that you have been following from Advent and will be following until Trinity Sunday anyways. It's perhaps um, a strange thing for us to get our heads around, but you follow the same reading Sunday after Sunday as we do, and, and, uh, and, and this time, uh, several centuries ago, Martin Luther would have perhaps preached on these same readings. This continuity is very important for us, and it's uh, perhaps difficult for us to get our heads around as late modern Western Christians or whatever regarding the logic of it. In the ancient one-year lectionary of the church, it's not, uh, it's, it's not as we would perhaps expect, a, a chronological uh, reading through Scripture, as you probably notice, and it's certainly not a, um, certainly not a topical uh, lectionary that's, uh, it's, it's, it's a theological lectionary and it's intended to, to focus upon the, the most important uh, theological truths that we find in Scripture in order to undergird and provide a foundation for our Bible study, whatever that may, in whatever form that takes in your small groups or, or in your individual devotional lives. Now, Epiphany season, you know, follows on the nativity and the placement of Epiphany following Christmas is important. And during Epiphany season, the whole logic of the readings is to reveal to us who is this Jesus who was born 
in a, in a manger so long ago. Who is it? And, and, and from, the, from, from the Sunday of, from Epiphany, which happened to be on a Sunday this year, where the Magi, the wise men from the East, come and they worship. And the, followings, uh, the following Sunday, where Jesus is uh, a, a boy on the cusp of manhood, uh, astonishing the religious elites in the temple with his answers and, and questions. Um, the whole point of it is, to reveal to us who this Jesus is in advance of the wilderness of Lent and the, and, the, and the journey of the church towards Good Friday and Easter Sunday. We need to have clearly in our mind who, who it is has, that has come and was born. And, and so he's revealed as the wisdom of God at the beginning of Epiphany. But then you might notice, if you remember, um, you know, the miracles and so on, he's revealed as the power of God. He has the... He's not just, in other words, uh, any old uh, preacher or famous teacher, even a, or even a prophet of power, but he's revealed as someone to whom even the, the, power of, the powers of, of nature themselves and all the demonic hordes answer. He is the ultimate authority. And we see him in all these various ways so that when it comes to Good Friday, we have in our mind the key aspects of who it is that who is Jesus. We see that he's not a passive um, participant in political machinations over which he has no control. Last week, if you recall, we see that Jesus himself grants the authority to the very political leaders that ultimately crucified him. It's very important to keep this in mind. Today, in this um, lectionary reading, and it's good, like I said, it's good to have it's good that you're not like, oh, I wonder why, like, Pastor John chose the readings today or, or whatever. Like, there, there's a certain kind of freedom in just this is what we have to read, this is what we have to study, rather than, like, that's weird, like, why was there a whole sermon on personal hygiene or whatever? What's, he, what's the pastor trying to say to us? There's no, there's no like, there's no, there's no, like, John's, I really want people to hear this or whatever, but I'm afraid to say it. Not that your pastor would be afraid to say it, but it's not like that. We are in a stream. We are in a deep and rich stream in this lectionary, and we confront the truth and the power, the discomforting, perhaps, uh, nature of this parable in some ways, as Christians have done for centuries, centuries. And today we see him as the Lord of history and the Lord of the church. And we also learn something about the nature of his body, the church here on earth. The kingdom of heaven is like, or to put it another way, the church in this world is like. He's not talking about the kingdom of darkness here. And though it is contested amongst commentators, I believe he's talking, I don't believe he's talking about the world in general. He's talking about the church here on earth. The collect that, that Pastor John prayed a few moments ago is all about, Lord, keep your church. In, in the true religion, in, in the right path, help us. It's a call to the Lord for help as a church. It's not talking about, in other words, evangelism in a hostile world. Help your church as wheat in the weeds of the world, you know, to, to proclaim. No, it's talking about, it's housekeeping. It's talking about who we are as a church. And we need the Lord's help and guidance and his grace to keep us in the right way all the time. All the time. The, the call of today indicates it. We are, it's a call uh, for the pursuit of holiness in the church. And so there's good seed 
which is another way of referring to the word of God or the gospel. And this should ring bells for other, another famous parable that refers to all of this as well. Good seed is planted in the field. The soil in the parable is clearly human, the human heart. But in this parable, we do not have the field clearly described as the other parable, the parable of the sower, describing the rocky parts, the paths which cut through it, the ground which needs to be overturned and softened, and the good, deep, rich soil. This is just a field. And so this is the church. This is the field in which the Lord sows his seed. However, unlike the other parable, the parable of the sower, we do not have merely one sower here, but two. We have the evil one sowing seeds of his own. And the word in the Greek refers to a specific kind of weed, which grows amongst the wheat. It's not just any old weed. It's probably referring to a weed called darnel, and it's a weed which afflicts wheat fields because it looks a lot like wheat. But it isn't. It isn't really wheat. And the same word is used in ancient literature to, some, to sometimes refer to a person who's a cheater, pretending to play by the rules, but undermining them for one's own purpose. And so the parable is not, I suggest to you, difficult for us to understand, but that doesn't make it easy for us. We have to, in, a, in an honest and open way, wrestle with what's going on here in our response. The sower is the Lord of the harvest. The church will be harvested and the wheat separated from the weeds. The church will be pure in the end, but in the meantime, we have the sower, the owner of the field, has servants who notice that the harvest is not pure. The owner of the field doesn't get his servants to do the work of the sowing, you'll note. He does that himself. He knows precisely the quality of the seed that he's sown. And it is in the deepest and truest sense his own life-giving ministry that he sows. And though the enemy comes along immediately, immediately, and gets to work corrupting the field, the Lord of the harvest, the owner of the field, is patient. Thanks be to God. Now, when I became a pastor, uh, when I became a Christian, when I became a pastor, when I became specifically an Anglican pastor, I had a deeply embedded, uh, I had deeply embedded in me this, this vision, this idea of the pure church. And it still vexes me, it causes me anxiety, it causes me stress, it makes me sometimes irritable. Um, I was easily and deeply disappointed whenever I perceived impurity in the church. It was shocking. And this parable didn't sink into my heart as much as perhaps this, the eschatological, the end time vision of the marriage supper of the lamb and the final redemption and purification of not just the church, but of everything. I had that notion, right, of the pure church, the pure bride being delivered to Jesus. And then when you see the reality of it in the world, you're like, what's, what's going on? What, what is, what's happening? It shouldn't be this way. And there's this temptation always to purge and to purify and to confront. And that's not, the confrontation isn't bad. And I'll get to that in a minute. But this parable encapsulates simply the current reality of the church, which is slowly but surely growing towards a harvest. And in the meantime, we are a mixed field of wheat and tares. And it will be better for us if we shelve any like, golden age thinking 
I don't know if John thinks this, but it's like, oh, if only, like, I lived, like, Martin Luther was my parish priest, and he would preach the way he preached, and joke about flatulence and so on, and my (laughs) spiritual life would be good then. If only I lived back then, under that pastor, under that preacher, if only I had whatever, that somehow things would be better. There's never been a, a better. Allow me to demoralize you. This one is a guest preacher. <laughs> Disabuse you of this pure age, uh, pure church and golden age thinking. There's never been a golden age of the church. There will never be a golden age of the church. So long as the Lord of the harvest is patient and his servants are waiting his signal to gather in the harvest. We had Judas amongst the apostles of Jesus. We have the apostle John in 1 John chapter 2 talking about antichrists. Antichrists, if you can imagine. But listen carefully to what he says. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Darnell, cheaters. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all that they all are not of us. In other words, from the start, it's it's difficult to to discern wheat from from weeds, but it becomes apparent through through people's conduct and, and how they treat one another and so on. Are they exploiting the church? Are they using it for personal gain or who knows what? Now, your pastor is more adept at giving you a history lesson of the church than am I, but allow me to cut through all the books and history lessons The whole history of the Christian church is essentially just a footnote on the treachery of Judas and the reality that the church herself seems to be the source of the production of these antichrists. And I think it's safe to say, based on what we know from Scripture, that the antichrist, of which all the small ones, starting from the New Testament church on to now, are are kind of precursors. The Antichrist at the end of history will also come from within the church, speak her language, act and minister in such ways to deceive even the faithful. As Jesus says in Matthew 24, 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So great, right? Great. Let's just leave it there, shall we? Because the answer is not cynicism and disappointment. That's not the response that we're to have to this. But what is the point? Because if every little church is a microcosm of the whole, we see the same cosmic battle out, it seems, wherever two or three are gathered. The same kind of spiritual warfare begins. And two things we need to keep in mind, probably more than two, but definitely two, that I'd like you to think about. Our orientation our trajectory individually and for any local church or vast institution, doesn't matter, needs always to always be kept in focus. Our focus must always be upon the risen Lord and the awesome reality of the final harvest. This orientation of the church towards the the reality of the coming Lord, Jesus at the end of history, the risen Christ, he is our goal. That's the one to whom we must always be turning. Our focus must be on him. And in the here and now and in the confusion and disappointment, this is important because the temptation is always to like look around, see what needs to be fixed. If only that person leaves 
or gets hit by a bus, that would be tragic. Or, or if only like the people read more like good theology rather than, you know, feeding on, on Joel Austin or whatever. If only like if you focus on all the, like, the immediate stuff, that fixing happens within a false context, a false orientation. The, our fixing, our desire to be pure as Christians and to be a church that is faithful, where the word is being preached, <coughs> excuse me, the orientation always needs to be towards the Lord at the end of history. The Lord of the harvest is patient with us too, right? It's for our sakes, for the world's sake, that he's patient. And when some people talk about the second coming and the harvest as being like, yay, great, I can't wait. No, we need to be thankful that the Lord is patient. Patient with us and patient with the church and patient with the world because it gives us all a chance to repent. And that's when we see the the disappointing things, the things that cause us distress, but it's even more important when we are confronted with the thought that perhaps we're very successful because that also is a temptation. That our programs are gaining traction, that people are actually paying money online to listen to our sermons. Can you imagine? That happened. Some people pay money to listen to pastors, not us, obviously, but like other pastors. They'll pay money to listen to online sermons. Like, anyway, when your church is held up to be exemplary and and your pastors, not yours, I'm afraid, fly all over the place speaking at conferences, maybe even in New York City, at a conference in New York City, that means you're like famous because we really know how to do things in a successful way. We're a model. Then the temptation is even stronger to focus no longer upon the end of history where the risen Lord is waiting, is drawing us towards judgment, but rather upon our little patch in the here and now and our impression of things and how things are going based on a very quick and limited snapshot. That's dangerous. That's every bit as dangerous as this desire to kind of fix and purge and kind of, you know, confront in a way that, that, that lacks that sort of end times trajectory. Both are temptations. Jesus, Jesus, the Lord of the harvest, needs to be the focus. In all our attempts and activities, Lord, help us in our impure churches where we have a mixture of people. You guys are the same as we are in Christ the King. We cast a wide net. You know, it's sometimes difficult, but also if the Lord grants us a certain kind of worldly notion of success that people recognize, it's even more important to to remember the Lord of the harvest and his patience. The second thing, however, is a counterbalance to the eschatological end to which we're inexorably growing, slowly but surely. It isn't wrong to focus upon what's happening. It isn't wrong. Today, the word today, is a big deal in Scripture. Today. You must open our, um, you must, when you do morning prayer, do you sometimes pray Psalm 95? It's, but Psalm 95 in classical Anglicanism, every morning before you read scripture, you pray Psalm 95 in advance of that. And it contains this, today if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. 
The subtle connection of the word of God as seed in our hearts as soil is present there. Every morning before we study the Bible, Lord, today, I'm not like, I can't be filled with self-nausea regarding what happened yesterday. And I'm not allowed to fret or make sort of build castles in the sky regarding tomorrow. But today, today, allow me to hear your voice and help me not to have a hardened heart. And though our orientation is towards the end, we are only responsible for how we hear and respond to the Lord today. We're not guaranteed anything beyond this kind of frame in which our obedience and our spiritual struggles and all the rest of it happen. A stalk of wheat orients itself towards the sun, receives the nourishment of the rain, pushes its roots down into the soil, and it does not pause that basic activity to muse upon what it was like yesterday or what's going to happen or like tomorrow. It's just, it grows. And look at the epistle which is paired with today's gospel. We have the way forward for us, each of us. The way forward is emphatically not looking at one another and querying who amongst us is weed or weeds. That's another temptation, right? Oh, I know where you, I know, I'm, I have a feeling, you know, that I think I know that you're not a wheat or, or that person's a, definitely a wheat and not a weed or whatever. We tend to kind of glance sidelong at one another. The gospel, uh, the epistle uh, reading does not allow that for us. He says, put on then, we, we are today called to put on Put on then, read it again. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you as a seed, right? Dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is what we're called to do. It's a simple question for us. Do we care to actually follow this imperative? in our actual and personal everyday lives and interactions with one another? Like some, some Christians are like, am I weed or am I wheat? What if all those passages regarding forgiveness don't apply to me? What if they apply, what if they apply to the whole world but to me? You know, we're not responsible to consider that, really. It's not, it's not a good way forward. But we are responsible for saying, well, this is kind of fairly basic instructions that even if you mess it up week to week, which I do, you at least kind of know, well, forgiveness isn't rocket science, is it? Even though it's hard, we're that's how we're responsible today to respond to whatever circumstances which we find ourselves in our homes, friendships, work, families, and so on. Today, we know how we're to respond to him. And if we do, if we seek his grace simply to obey what he's saying here, so practical if we if we if we are wheat because <laughs> we can't grow in this way unless the lord is working in us by his grace and converting our 
our minds, renewing our minds, converting our hearts in order to obey him. We're not the judges of other people's souls ultimately. We are not the lords of the harvest, as as tempting as that might be. We are, however, to observe one another's conduct and hold one another to account. That's, that's, That's not a bad thing. But none of us are holy yet. And so whenever that happens, the Apostle Paul is like, be humble, right? Be gentle, be, so that you, don't, you, that you too don't fall into some kind of temptation. And none of us are holy yet, and so we are called to spur one another on as we grow up in the Lord. None of us are as patient as the Lord of the harvest. We want it all right now. Can we just, like, can we have it now? No. Patience. And even if we're not as patient as the Lord of the harvest, by the grace of God, may we be more patient this year than last year. And if not more patient this year than last year, hopefully more aware of our need for grace and forgiveness as a consequence. That's too is growth. And while we respond to the Lord by his grace, not presuming to ask questions again regarding who is really wheat and who is really weed or wondering about our own lives, we must give thanks to the Lord of the... That, that he's patient with us and giving us a chance to repent and respond. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, he did this kind of epic sermon series on Romans, this great, or do you presume, he says, on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Can a weed become a wheat? Definitely. I think so. Can a heart of stone become a heart of flesh? Yes, it can. And the Lord works such miracles in those our hearts more than we will ever know ourselves. So while the church in a big way, or in our own small ways, as I'm just drawing this to a conclusion, crashes along towards the end of history and the final harvest, let us take the Apostle Paul's words to heart. Today, let us do what we are told to put on then as holy and beloved. And if one of us is here and we realize that we do not care, or there's an aspect of our lives which we know has rejected this clear instruction, we have today an opportunity to repent and to ask the Lord otherwise, perhaps to soften our hearts. Help me, Lord, to repent of this. Help me. Each and every one of us is given the opportunity for regular reflection and response. And the litany is certainly part of that in in this whole service. So let us take hold of the kindness and patience of God and respond to him and grow towards him, the Lord of the harvest. Let us pray. Lord, you know our situation in this world. And you know our lives in your church. Lord, we ask that by your grace, you would help us to respond to you and your word and to grow towards you, receiving from you all the nourishment and the protection that we need. Lord, work in us by your Holy Spirit as we feed upon your word, as we drink of your living water. Lord, help us to grow for your glory. And Lord, I do pray that you would help us to to remember in our prayers um, and give thanks for your patience 
in dealing kindly with us and giving us a daily opportunity to respond and hear from your voice. But Lord, we pray also for your church, that you would help us, that you would keep us uh, safe, and Lord, that by your glory, you would use us, even though our fields may be mixed. Lord, that you would use us for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.